This is the fruit of a doctrine that says that the second coming of Christ is good news and the warning of the second coming of Christ. I know. (laughs) Both exist together in Adventism. Get ready. People get ready. Jesus is coming. It's scary. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. In today's episode, we're discussing Adventist fundamental belief number 25 on the second coming of Christ. And like all the others before it, I believe this chapter has been strategically placed where it is. It comes just after Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, aka the investigative judgment, and just before their doctrine on soul sleep. Two of the Adventist doctrines most difficult to hide from believers and most fragile under the scrutiny of Scripture. It's my belief that by placing a doctrine on the return of Christ between these two aberrant teachings, they're attempting to find common ground with Christians and to dull their ability to discern the problems with Adventism by watering down the effect of one false teaching on top of the other. It's no secret among Adventists that we tread carefully when speaking of our unique doctrines to outsiders, and this book is careful to do just that. But that being said, I have to say, I think they've failed at this. Mm -hmm. Even when speaking of the hope believers have in the return of Christ, there's so much in this chapter that reveals their cultic worldview. Without question, the chapter exposes the apocalyptic nature of their cultic teachings, even though they try to distance themselves from the people who have set dates for his return (laughs) in the past. Now, if you're joining us in this particular series for the first time, we encourage you to go back to episode number 99 and begin listening from the introduction. By their own words on the back of the book, each chapter builds on itself to reveal what I would call the best-dressed doctrines of Adventism. Best-dressed because these doctrines are in their Sabbath clothes. (laughs) They're putting their best foot forward, requiring particular effort from the reader to see the underbelly of Adventist teaching. And in this series, Colleen and I discuss these chapters one by one in the light of scripture, of Adventist history, and of the words of their own prophetess. And by doing this, we've seen with more clarity the deception and grooming involved in creating this book. So be sure to start from the beginning. Again, that's episode 99. Now, before we get started, let me remind you that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view past online articles and to sign up for weekly emails delivered to your inbox every Friday with new articles and other ministry news. Also, if you've been blessed by what we do here and would like to help support this free weekly podcast, you can do so by clicking on the donate tab while you're there. Life Assurance Ministries is a 501c3 and as such, all donations are tax deductible. We're so grateful for all of you who've come alongside us with your support and prayers and encouragement. We hope you'll continue to pray for the reach of this ministry and for God to keep us faithful. Don't forget to like or follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. So Colleen, here's my question for you. Did you look forward to the second coming when you were an Adventist? Uh, Not really. I was afraid of it. I remember my eighth grade teacher said to us one day, I really believe that none of you will graduate from academy. I believe Jesus will come before that. And I remember sitting in class thinking, I'm supposed to look forward to this, but I really 
want to get through school and I really want to get married and I really want to, you know, like have a life. <laughs> and, and I felt so guilty because I didn't want Jesus to come yet. Mm-hmm. Of course, I wanted him to come, but not yet. And the other thing was when I thought about him coming, it was just terrifying. I used to lie awake at night and see the moon through the clouds. I lived in Oregon, so there were a lot of clouds. And it would go in and out of the clouds, and a lot of them would be shadowed with darkness, you know, behind the moon and Mm -hmm. over the moon. And I would get these pangs of fear. Oh, is that the little black cloud that's Mm going to get bigger? And then I'd think, well, no, the time of trouble hasn't happened yet. (laughs) So it was just a, a terrifying thing. I didn't know whether I would be saved or lost, and I wouldn't know till Jesus came. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be the blessed hope, but I didn't feel hope. I felt dread. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever felt really different until I became a truly born-again Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, and now how do you feel about the second coming? Nikki, it's the best thing possible. <laughs> I cannot wait, and I don't mean that You know, I don't mean that like I heard Adventists say it, like, oh, I can't wait to see Jesus. Oh, I'm so sick of this life. I just can't wait for Jesus to come. I don't mean it that way. I mean, the thought of being with Him, Mm -hmm. of seeing Him, is kind of overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's the best possible thing. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Yes, and I feel that. (laughs) I hear that. Yeah. What about you, Nikki? Well, it's funny, your story of the cloud um, I have one like that, only I never heard about the cloud. Oh. But when I moved to Southern California, I was completely unaware of the fact that when the military shoots their test missiles up over the ocean, you can see that from the Inland Empire. <laughs> That's true. And I was facing west one afternoon, and one of those missiles went up. I had no idea what it was, but there was this light that was expanding uh-huh. And around it were all of these colors, like a rainbow. It is quite beautiful. It's so pretty. And and it was one of the biggest I've ever seen since living here. And it almost seemed to have like fog or something emanating from it, some kind of smoke. And I stopped in my tracks and I thought, this is happening now. <laughs> <laughs> this is going down. And I felt so conflicted because a part of me was like, yes. And another part of me was like, no. <laughs> I was very dual in my, in my reaction to oh, it. Oh, yes. And then I had this moment, and this is what makes me laugh now, where I thought, no, I'm being stupid. The Sunday law hasn't come yet. Yes. <laughs> Which, of course, now makes me laugh. It was definitely a conflicting thing thinking about the coming of Jesus, because you have all of these horrifying things that are going to take place first. Colleen, it never occurred to me that they wouldn't. I know, me either. Never occurred to me that those that Ellen could have been wrong about that, yeah. or that those things wouldn't happen. Yeah. That just would have been too good to be true. Right. There was the, the anxiety about that. If I live long enough, I'm going to have to endure that. But if I'm lucky enough to die first, then... I won't have to deal with any of that. I'll just pop up out of the ground when Jesus comes back. Um, And then I also had kind of split thinking where there was a part of me that was like, am I going to be saved? Am I going to make it? I hope so. I really want to. And I tell him I really want to. And then there was this 
other part of me that just, of course, I'm going to be there. I don't know how to explain it. it I was, understand it, that. It's very different from assurance. Yes. It's almost more like a mental split Yeah, where you can't merge the two. Mm-hmm. You can't, I don't know. I was the same way though. I'd have that same split in my thinking, believing I couldn't possibly be saved, yeah. but then thinking, what's it going to be like in yes. heaven? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, what kind of pets will I have? Right. What kind of house will I have? Dreaming about, you know, picnicking with lions. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so there was definitely that split, but there was a big difference between my feelings about the actual return of Christ and then thinking of being up there after all of that, if I happen to be lucky enough to go. I so understand that. My lands. I used to actually sort of try to prepare myself for the eventuality that I would be lost. I figured I wouldn't burn long because I really wasn't terrible, Mm -hmm. but I knew that I wasn't good. So I figured I'd burn a little bit. I just used to think, oh, you know, things like my physical therapist father who had been fully schooled in hydrotherapy, old school type, had insisted that we have at least a count to three full cold at the end of our hot showers. <clears throat> and we had a well with 50 degree water. Oh. So I would stand there for, to the count of three because I was very obedient and it was just agonizing. And I remember thinking, if I can make it through this, I'm preparing myself for that burn. Wow. You know, this is, it's miserable, but you know, I have to steal myself and get through this. So I was preparing myself for the second coming and that I would not make it. But then on the other hand, you know, I'd think about putting my crown on a shelf like Ellen White said, but it was all scary to me and terrifying, and I had no assurance that I would make it. And of course, we wouldn't know till Jesus came. Well, you know what? This is the fruit of a doctrine that says that the second coming of Christ is good news and the warning of the second coming of Christ. I know. Right? <laughs> Both exist together in Adventism. Get ready. People get ready. Jesus is coming. It's scary. Well, you know, it's interesting that you said it that way because that everybody get ready mm-hmm. was the whole Millerite cry. That's how Adventism started. And isn't it interesting, Nikki, that this religion, which grew out of a failed date setting for the return of Christ and morphed into, oh, it's just the investigative judgment, he's cleansing heaven, mm-hmm. to save face, but the date was right. Mm-hmm. Never mind that the Bible says no date setting, but they kept the date, mm-hmm. just changed the event. Clear to the tail end of their whole eschatology, it began in a false view of the coming of Christ. It ends in a false view of the return of Christ. And it's terrifying at both ends. Those founding Adventists were disappointed. They wanted to, to leave the earth. Mm-hmm. But they were probably more disappointed because they everything they had planned was wrong. How do you recover from that? But now we go to the fast forward at the end of Adventism and we get... Jesus is coming, and it's all about the law, and it's all about judgment. It's not about Him coming, as it says in Hebrews 9.28, not to deal with sin, but to receive those who are eagerly awaiting Him. And I had no understanding of that. Mm -mm. Nobody in Adventism, I think it's fair to say, is eagerly awaiting Him because nobody in Adventism knows for sure, for sure, that they're saved. Yeah, and you know, I, I remember as an Adventist, I think I would have pushed back a little bit on the idea that none of us knew. But after I had my first full weekend at the former Adventist Fellowship Conference, and I'll just put a plug in now, 
you guys plan on coming in February. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember going to the lunch afterwards and Carolyn May Cumber came and spoke to me and I was getting ready to leave. Mm-hmm. I had just spent the whole weekend hearing the gospel and there was a part of me that was able to blend a little bit. Like there's a lot of Adventism that's wrong, but it's not all wrong. Right. But a lot of it's wrong. And there are places where we can come together and meet and agree on things. And I didn't know yet. You know, I was really young out. Right. And she came to me and she said, Nikki, if you were to die today, would you be saved? That was the question that revealed to me that I had no assurance. Yeah. And I had a pretty, I think, a pretty liberal view inside of Adventism. Oh, God is gracious. He's merciful. He'll forgive. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows my heart. (laughs) Exactly. He knows my heart. (laughs) Which isn't good news, but, you know. (laughs) Um, But that's what confronted me with the idea that you cannot have assurance in Adventism. You cannot. Even if you look at Adventism and you say the investigative judgment is wrong, I don't believe, Alan, you still can't have assurance. Right. Because you have the entire worldview in your head. That's right. And I told her, I hope so. (laughs) And she said, do you want to just seal the deal? It was in that moment that I was able to draw on everything I'd heard over the weekend and to put my faith and trust in that gospel and that good news and walking away knowing that it was done, that I was his, that was different. That's knowing. That's assurance. And, you know, I want to say to Adventists, if you can picture, just imagine that the return of Christ comes without any investigative judgment. Mm -hmm. There's no Sunday law. There's no test of your faithfulness. It's just you and Jesus. It's just believing Him, and you can know you're saved. That joy, that hope is what we live with every day That's when right. we trust the gospel. It's a different event than yeah. the event Adventists describe. Mm-hmm. And what you say is so true, Nikki, because when you put your faith and trust in Jesus and His finished work alone, that assurance is not a conjured frame of mind, like, oh, I've done that. Now that means I'm now in. Mm-hmm. It's something the Lord does. He actually gives us new birth. He actually gives us a new heart, a new spirit, and He literally places His spirit in us, and we know we're new. Mm-hmm. There is no maybe about it. And if you haven't experienced what we're describing it's probably because you haven't placed your trust fully in Jesus and let go of all the what-ifs and the hedging of your bets. The Lord God is the one who saves us. Mm-hmm. We don't save ourselves by making the right decision. We trust Him. He gives us the faith to trust, and He gives us new birth. So that experience you had <laughs> is powerful, and nothing can take it away. Mm-mm. And it's not faith in our faith or faith no. in our trust. It's knowing who God is and that He is perfect and omniscient and omnipotent, and He's able to know everything there is to know about you, and He's powerful and strong enough to complete what He sets out to do. And He did. He completed all that was needed for our salvation. And so it's not, I'm believing well enough. I'm trusting hard enough. It's He's good enough. He's perfect enough. He's competent enough to do this. Yes. It's a completely different Jesus than I knew in Adventism. Mm -hmm. Completely different second coming that I'm looking forward to now. And a completely different hope. It's really interesting. If you ask a Christian, what is your great hope? Mm -hmm. Our great hope is 
the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's enough. He finished everything necessary to save me on the cross once for all. He is my hope. But if you ask an Adventist, what is your hope? What's your great and blessed hope? What will they say? Jesus is coming again. Yes, and it makes me think of Tim Martin and his Roots, Shoots, and Those in Cahoots, which if you haven't watched it on YouTube, you really should. I think you'd learn a lot. It's great. He pointed out that all of the Adventists that stemmed from the Millerite movement had a unique gospel, and this was it. Jesus is coming. Pack your bags. Mm. And that summarizes Adventism's gospel. It's not Jesus has done everything necessary. It's He's coming. He's coming. Get ready. Get ready. Mm-hmm. And it's all about keeping the law and doing things right. And that's not the gospel. So let's read this doctrine before we go any further. Okay. So fundamental belief 25. We're almost done. <laughs> the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is the blessed hope of the church, the grand climax of the gospel. The Savior's coming will be literal, personal, visible, and worldwide. When He returns, the righteous dead will be resurrected and, together with the righteous living, will be glorified and taken to heaven, and the unrighteous will die. The almost complete fulfillment of most lines of prophecy, together with the present condition of the world, indicates that Christ's coming is near. The time of that event has not been revealed, and we are therefore exhorted to be ready at all times. So, reactions to any of those statements? They're masterful at saying what they're not saying and not saying what they know they shouldn't say until later. It's really true. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's true that Christians rejoice in the second coming of Christ. Like we talked about, the Mm -hmm. Spirit and the Bride say, come. We love His appearing, but it's because it's already finished. Yes. It's so different from what they have packed in between the lines in the white space of this doctrine. And we'll get to see more of that next week when we talk about the resurrection and, and what death actually means to the Adventists. But they say these things, like the Savior's coming will be literal, personal, visible, and worldwide. Yes, true. Yeah. But what they're saying is there's no secret rapture. And that also presupposes that Christians really believe in a secret rapture. Yeah. No, this is one of their straw man arguments where they tell the Adventists what the Christians believe, and then they argue with that, but it's no reflection of what we believe. Yeah, there was a fictional book series. There's been a movie. But that's not what the Bible says or describes. No, and I don't know any Christians who believe that there will be a secret rapture personally. There may be some out there, but I've never met them. No, I haven't either. And that's not to say that the rapture won't be sudden and unexpected. I think the Bible gives us the complete understanding that we don't know the details, but it will be sudden. Mm Mm-hmm. Jesus even said, you won't know in advance. It will be sudden. It will come like a thief in the night. Paul said that. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there's some element of surprise, but it doesn't mean secret. It doesn't mean silent. 1 Thessalonians 4 is quite clear that there will be a trumpet and a shout of an archangel. The secret rapture is a myth. Mm -hmm. What else? Well, it's frustrating knowing what's coming and what they're not saying. When they talk about the righteous dead being resurrected together with the righteous living, that they'll be glorified and taken to heaven, there's so much behind that. There's so much behind that. And it sounds Christian. If a Christian read that, they'd sit there and they'd think, Thessalonians, yep, this is right. Yes. They need to dig deeper because you're not at that chapter yet. (laughs) 
That's right. Uh huh. Because their view of death is very different from the biblical view of death. Mm -hmm. So when they make these statements, they're assuming their own worldview. They're not building on a biblical worldview. And that's the genius of their deception. Mm -hmm. They say these things that Christians would go, yeah, yeah, I agree. But their foundation that's hidden out of sight is something developed by Ellen White that's not biblical. It makes me think of the wolf in sheep's clothing. So, (laughs) So they say these words that Christians can agree with, and that's the wool. That's, That's the, the wool on the wolf. Yeah. <laughs> and the wolf is Adventist doctrine. Yeah, the wolf is soul sleep. Yes. And, and not soul sleep as some Christians understand it. No. There's not even a soul that's asleep. No, I, I don't know why they call it that. Annihilation. Yeah. It's ceasing to exist except in God's memory. Yeah. And then this next part, the almost complete fulfillment of most lines of prophecy together with the present condition of the world indicates that Christ's coming is near. Again, a Christian might go, yeah, I can see that. But then you read the chapter (laughs) and you're going to be like, what? What? Yeah. (laughs) We were talking about this earlier. I had not seen so clearly until I actually studied this chapter for this podcast that the Adventist version of the second coming is a completely different event from the one the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. This is the last peg, or nearly the last peg, in their soteriology, Mm -hmm. in their false soteriology. This is the last chapter of their investigative judgment. This is the event that encompasses putting sins on Satan Mm -hmm. and... Um, finding out who kept the law and who didn't. This is a completely different event. This is a cultic doctrine. And they call it the second coming, and they put it in the name of their organization. But it is not the biblical teaching. It's a different event. Once again, it's like talking about Jesus, and it's a different Jesus. Yeah. It's another phase. Like we talked about last week, they have their three phases of atonement that are overlaid with their three phases of judgment. And so, when Jesus returns, now we're going to move into the millennial judgment. Yes. It's the next phase of judgment. You're right. This is the mark of the next phase of judgment. Mm -hmm. It's not the final culmination of all things for the church. And the time of the event has not been revealed, you know. Right. (laughs) They don't mention at all that Adventism was born out of a failed date setting in 1843 and then 1844, and they'll remove themselves from the Millerite movement. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, they talked about the great disappointment and they say they were disappointed. You know, all these different groups, they believed all these different things would happen on that date. They were disappointed, but we kept studying and we came to understand, I think it was last week, the, the ministry in heaven. And it's funny because you know what? They acknowledge and in a way honor and celebrate October 22nd every single year. They do. That is their (laughs) anti-holiday. But the interesting thing is, I've actually heard Adventists say, Adventism never set dates, ever. They never set a date. That was the Millerites. Okay, then let's not have celebrations and memorial services in your churches on October 22. Yeah, where the president shames the entire denomination because Jesus hasn't come back yet. You can't have it both ways. But, you know, they are deceptive and they will do what they need to do to convince people. So, as they introduce this chapter, they give a little story of a child's longing for the return of Jesus. And they talk about how when Christ comes... It will be an overwhelming surprise. And they say 
that he will come with the clouds. And of course, that brings up what you said in your answer about Jesus coming in a cloud the size of a man's hand. But they say, at his coming, great despair grips those who have refused to acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord and have rejected the claim of his law on their lives. They say, as Jesus draws near, he calls his sleeping saints from the graves and commissions his angels to gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So here they talk about people are just devastated because they have not responded to the claim that the law has on their lives. They do mention Jesus here, but you just kind of blow past him and see that law where they messed up. And then the saints are sleeping in their graves. Yes. But they follow this up with a text from Jude. And Jude says... Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, they want you to focus on the ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. You know, you better get godly. He's coming back. But this text says that Jesus comes back with 10,000s of saints. It does, and I never saw that as an Adventist. And they clearly haven't seen it because they just used it. (laughs) (laughs) To point out ungodliness. Yeah. (laughs) The saints are with Christ when He returns, and there are multiple texts. We'll get to that next week. But I I found that kind of interesting that they had both here in this section. You know, and I think what my mind would do when I would see these texts as an Adventist, it would kind of do unconscious closure where I'd read Jesus is coming with 10,000 of his saints and somehow I'd imagine it to be angels because another way you can interpret it is holy ones. He comes with 10,000 of his holy ones and the Adventist art all showed him in the middle of a big aura with a rainbow around it and then there were this whole circle of the 10,000 angels surrounding him and he's sitting on a throne with a scepter in his hand and a crown on his head coming down and people are standing in their graves fully clothed going, oh, he's coming. (laughs) And that's how I pictured it, that the saints were angels. And I didn't even think about it. Same. You know, it's interesting. This book does not quote what Ellen White says about his return. They never contradict one thing she says. They actually enforce what she says with different words, with, Mm -hmm. with more guarded words. But I looked up in the Great Controversy last night, and I saw some stuff that I had forgotten. But it's clearly part of the whole ethos of the Adventist Second Coming, whether you've heard these words or not. Now, this is a quote from page 639. She's describing Jesus' supposed return in Adventist style. The clouds sweep back, and the starry heavens are seen, unspeakably glorious in contrast with the black and angry firmament on either side. The glory of the celestial city streams from the gates ajar. Now get this. There appears against the sky a hand holding two tables of stone folded together, says the prophet. The heavens shall declare his righteousness for God is judge himself. That's a quote from Psalm 50. That holy law, God's righteousness, notice the equation of the law being God's righteousness, Mm -hmm. that amid thunder and flame was proclaimed from Sinai as the guide of life, is now revealed to men as 
the rule of judgment. The hand opens the tables, and there are seen the precepts of the Decalogue traced as with a pen of fire. The words are so plain that all can read them. Memory is aroused. The darkness of superstition and heresy is swept from every mind, and God's ten words, brief, comprehensive, and authoritative, are presented to the view of all the inhabitants of the earth. It is impossible to describe the horror and despair of those who have trampled upon God's holy requirements. The Lord gave them his law that they might have compared their characters with it and learned their defects while there was yet opportunity for repentance and reform. But in order to secure the favor of the world, they set aside its precepts and taught others to transgress. They have endeavored to compel God's people to profane his Sabbath. Now they are condemned by that law which they have despised. With awful distinctness they see that they are without excuse. They chose whom they would serve and worship. Is it any wonder we feared his coming? (laughs) Or that Sunday law? Or the Sunday law, yeah. Which we knew was coming because Ellen said it was. And if we dared profane his Sabbath, that was it. And can you imagine that she pictures the second coming before Jesus shows up, which he, he in, in the great controversy, he shows up a couple of pages later. Okay. But before he shows up, there's that angry, black, roiling, cloudy sky, and it opens up in parts, and there's a hand holding the Ten Commandments, the standard of judgment, which is now going to judge the earth as Jesus comes. His second coming is for judgment. The Bible's clear his second coming is not to deal with sin. Mm-hmm. It was a different event. So she's just described the whole world seeing the Decalogue appear in the sky. Yeah. And their memories are swept away or brought back. They're brought back. Memories the, aroused. The heresy swept away. Yeah. And they're convicted of their sin. Yeah. And, and then Jesus comes back. And then Jesus comes and back. And he comes back on a cloud the size of a man's hand. Yes. It says a couple of pages later. Soon there appears in the east a small black cloud, about half the size of a man's hand. It is the cloud which surrounds the Savior and which seems in the distance to be shrouded in darkness. The people of God know this to be the sign of the Son of Man. How do we know that? (laughs) The Bible doesn't say this. In solemn silence, they gaze upon it as it draws nearer the earth, becoming lighter and more glorious until it is a great white cloud. Its base, a glory like consuming fire, and above it, the rainbow of the covenant. Jesus rides forth as a mighty conqueror. That's where those pictures of the second coming come from. Wow. The rainbow around him, the throne coming down from the sky. And it starts as a black cloud. Uh Uh-huh. The size of a man's hand. Now, you know, the only reference I know to that is when Elijah was on Mount Carmel, and he had just destroyed the priests of Baal. And there had been a drought for three years, and he had prayed that God would send rain. He destroyed the priests, and his servant saw a little cloud the size of a man's hand out over the sea, and it got bigger and bigger, and the rain came. That's the only reference to a size, a cloud the size of a man's hand in Scripture. And I don't know where she gets this, but she applies that to the second coming. And I think most Adventists know that. I remember when we were having our weekly Bible studies with our neighbors back when we were still Adventists, but 
this is what kind of led us to see that what we thought Scripture said it didn't say. Mm-hmm. It was during that time when Richard said that Jesus was coming back with, you know, in a cloud the size of a man's hand. <laughs> and our neighbor Mel looked at us and says, where do you find that in the Bible? And Richard said, oh, I'll show you next week. <laughs> no, not there. <laughs> That's the Advent of Second Coming. You know, it's interesting. Somebody told me to look up the art created for the Jehovah's Witness community about the second coming of Christ. And it is like looking at my own previous worldview. People in graveyards and cemeteries, and they all have the same style of clothes too, which is funny. (laughs) Same haircuts. But it's definitely a part of that root shoots in those in cahoots. As you mentioned, it's that Adventist Mm -hmm. movement, that idea. Jesus is coming. Pack your bags. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Mm-hmm. Which is why Ellen said that God held his hand over William Miller's first mistake when he said Jesus was coming in 1843. And then, oh no, oops, I was wrong. It's 1844. And Ellen White said God held his hand over the mistake so people would get ready. Well, you know, as we walk through this chapter in their fundamental belief book, Seventh Adventist Believe, It says under the heading, the manner of Christ's return, I just have to mention this because it's so ironic to me now. It mentions that Jesus warned that before the second advent, and then it quotes from Matthew 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And I want to say, (laughs) Ellen White, anyone? She's right there in that phrase, a false prophet Mm -hmm. who's deceiving. Even some of the elect, but not forever, because there are true believers who get converted into Adventism and God pulls them out. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that he says uh, among the messages of all these false prophets and, and all of their signs is Jesus is coming. He's here. He's there. Look, go over there. He's yes. saying, don't listen to them. So don't listen to Ellen White. If you want to know anything about the coming of Jesus, read scripture and you'll find It's not completely described. We are given enough so that we will know what to expect and we will know it when it happens. But we aren't told all the details that Adventism tries to make plain. And I just want to take this opportunity to say again, in Adventism, the second coming and how you think about it, it's part of the central shape of the organization. It's the soul of the religion. But In Christianity, in a biblical worldview, the core is Jesus. And the second coming is the logical next step. It's not important that we completely understand all the timing of the details because the Bible doesn't make them completely clear. But Adventism requires that you believe it happened like they say. Mm -hmm. And that's just not biblical. I found it interesting that under the certainty of Christ's return, they say that Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary offers us assurance that he's coming back. (laughs) They said Christ's revelation to John makes it clear that the heavenly sanctuary is central to the plan of salvation. The prophecies that indicate he has begun his final ministry on behalf of sinners add to the assurance that soon he will return to take his people home. See chapter 24 of this book. (laughs) Which was? Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. It's their investigative judgment doctrine. This is another example of their creating like a straw man argument where they make assumptions 
They say, this is, of course, that. That is, of course, this. Look at Revelation. Here's our proof. No, they're taking scripture out of context, assigning meanings to things that the Bible doesn't say. The heavenly sanctuary, according to Adventism, that heavenly sanctuary is an invented myth. That sanctuary service of Jesus going through the books and applying his blood to everything we've remembered to confess, that's a heresy. That has nothing to do with the second coming, but that's the assumption they want you to believe. They've just walked you through that doctrine, and now they've presented the second coming. This is a cultic doctrine. This is not the biblical doctrine. And that sanctuary, it doesn't exist. Mm-mm. Jesus' coming has nothing to do with that invented investigative judgment. And according to their time frame, Jesus comes back at the end of the investigative judgment. So they start with the investigative judgment in this book, and then they lead you into that. Jesus is coming. There's yes. going to be a test. You know, you're supposed to be confessing all of these sins. This is how you have them covered. You have to apply his blood. Yes. It's very mystical, actually, if you think about it. And then maybe you'll make it when he gets here. And on top of that, they let you know, or Ellen White does, that it's all about the law. Mm -hmm. The law is at the heart of the second coming. And if you've kept it, you might be good enough to go. And if you haven't, curtains for you. And I just want to say, I was so struck. We were talking about this with Richard before we recorded, and he pointed out that the law is... The power of sin, and it is the thing that judges sin, was given to Israel to point out sin, to increase sin, as it says in Galatians and Romans, and to condemn people who are breaking it. It was never intended to make people righteous. Like Ellen White said, if they had observed the law soon enough, they could have changed their character. No, the law was given to prove to them they couldn't do that. They needed Jesus to give them a new character. But Adventism takes the law, places it at the heart of the glorious return of the Savior who has already completed everything and saved forever those who trust in Him, and they twist it into a condemning event instead of the glorious culmination of what He's promised. They've made it something terrible. They've made us dread the appearance of the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, they have let us know that Satan is bearing away our final sins. Now, they will not say he bears our sins, but they say he is the scapegoat and Jesus places our sins on the scapegoat and the scapegoat bears them into the lake of fire. They actually make Jesus the one who gives the sins to Satan. Isn't that horrible? It's so perverted. It is. And it isn't until that moment that atonement is considered complete according to their three phases of atonement. They have completely decimated Jesus and his glorious appearing, and they've elevated Satan. If there's any doubt as to the origin of this doctrine, just look at what they actually teach. Mm -hmm. Just look at what they say. Look what Ellen White wrote. It's completely contradicting Colossians. Colossians says that when Jesus died on that cross, he disarmed Satan. Well, what was he armed with? The law. The law. Yeah. That is Colossians 2, 14 and 15. And it says that Jesus nailed the law to the cross in his flesh, and he humiliated and disarmed Satan. He took Satan's only weapon against the saints to the cross. And Satan is defenseless now. He's just creating a flurry of, di- of distractions, but the law has been fulfilled. The death sentence has been fulfilled, 
And we enter life when we trust Jesus. There's no more law for those who believe. And you know, it's important to point out that that it's not just the fact that Jesus did away with the law and that he broke down that barrier. It's wonderful. We celebrate in that. But Paul warns us not to go back to it. Yes, Because that's like returning to the elemental principles. That's Galatians 4. And it's so fascinating when Paul says that because he says it to Gentiles who never had the law, mm-hmm. but they were being Judaized by people from James, as he puts it, you know, from Jerusalem. They were truly not true believers, but they were Judaizing the Gentile believers. And Paul said this, however, at that time, pointing back to when the Galatians were pagans, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. That was their idols. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Nikki, it's amazing what Paul is saying to them. Yeah. And in the context of the letter, he is corresponding those false gods with reaching back to the law. You cannot use the law unlawfully. And once Jesus fulfilled the law, it's obsolete, as it says in Hebrews 8.13. It's just like, as I have mentioned before, when my mother died and I was left with the responsibility of completing the administration of her trust. When everything was dispersed, everything was taken care of according to her instructions in the trust. Her trust became obsolete. It was fulfilled. That is the case with the law. Jesus fulfilled it. And if you go back to it, it's empty now. There's no more meaning in it. It just becomes a shackle of rules. Paul talks again in Timothy about the law. And he says, now we know, this is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he goes on to list off various sins. So those who are justified before God the law is not laid down for them. Absolutely. And if you try to put that over the people of God, you're using the law unlawfully. And here is Ellen White showing the law at the second coming when Jesus is coming for his own who are already saved. The law does not show up at the second coming. So then they go in to describe the second advent in the human race, and they talk about the gathering of the elect, the resurrection of the dead in Christ, the translation of the living believers, all of this in the context of the great controversy worldview, all of it in conflict with scripture. Absolutely. It, it just doesn't jive. As they're describing how all of this is going to unfold, they squeeze in the mark of the beast, <laughs> You know, which really they should be saying a lot more about it here because it is a big part of their mm-hmm. eschatological worldview. But they just kind of toss it in here and they say the powers responsible for enforcing the mark of the beast, see chapter 13 of this book, will be cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So that's kind of the only mention of it. But if you've read chapter 13 of this book, it's kind of scary. And what you have to remember about that mark of the beast is that it is Sunday keeping. Yes. Oh, it's all about the papacy. This entire doctrine and the doctrine of the time of trouble 
and the doctrine of the investigative judgment, even for that matter, is all centered around Ellen White's persistent teaching that the Antichrist is the Pope and the Daughters of the Whore of Babylon are all those Protestant denominations that have followed after the beast and accepted honoring Sunday instead of keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. That's the great divide in Ellen White's worldview. Sabbath keepers versus Sunday keepers. And by the time you get to this chapter, they assume you've bought in because they no longer try to prove that the Bible says any of this. They just say, as the Bible says, this will happen. The Pope will do this. The papacy will rise. According to scripture, they don't try to actually teach it at this point. You're bought in. You're under that alligator's claw. And then they go on to talk about the signs of Christ's soon return. Colleen, this was so surprising to me. I don't remember learning about any of this in Adventism. interesting. I was laughing out loud in my living room because what else can you do? (laughs) (laughs) When they were systematically talking about how specific things that have happened in the last couple hundred years were the fulfillment of Christ's prophecies about what it will be like right before he comes back. So according to Christ's prediction, this was fulfilled. Right. He said it would happen and it did when he said it was going to happen. Uh-huh. And they have this all laid out on this timeline that's related somehow to Daniel. <laughs> can you explain this? No. <laughs> <laughs> but what I can say is um, they have they have a lot of events that they have placed at dates in time that nobody can really explain. I'm sure there are some Adventist theologians who can, but I can't. But I do know that they have a chart at the beginning of the chapter. And one thing I figured out in studying this chapter that I'd never known before was that um, the 2300-day prophecy, which we mentioned last week in reference to the investigative judgment, the 2300-day prophecy has embedded in it different timelines. So there is the 1260-day prophecy, and there's the 42-month prophecy, and then there's the three-and-a-half-year prophecy. And, you know, my eyes glaze over. Mm -hmm. I had no clue what to do with any of that as an Adventist. But what I'm realizing now is that the so-called 1260-day prophecy is something that is not specifically named in Scripture that I could find, but Christians actually understand that to be equivalent to the three-and-a-half-year prophecy. In fact, it goes this way. Daniel was writing to Jews, and so we're using a Jewish year, which is 360 days. So if you figure out the three-and-a-half-year prophecy about the time of trouble, you know, when the Antichrist will be in ascendancy, that equates with 1260 days. But Adventists don't use that typical Christian figuring. They have just assigned dates to the 1260-year prophecy, which start in 538 AD and end in 1798 AD. And you say, why? And I say, I don't know. (laughs) But Ellen White is insisting that those were the years when the papacy persecuted God's people and that it ended when the Pope was captured in a war. Now, don't ask me to explain it further. It's all (laughs) very confusing to me. But the fact is, that framework has nothing to do with Scripture. But it's at the heart of their whole doctrine of the 2300 days. I have a quote here from Ellen that I'm just going to read to summarize. Don't expect to understand it. But this is the sort of I... (laughs) crossing strangeness that she writes that we're supposed to understand that 
validates their time prophecies in the time of the end. The 2300 days had been found to begin when the commandment of Artaxerxes for the restoration and building of Jerusalem went into effect in the autumn of 457 BC. Taking this as the starting point, there was perfect harmony in the application of all the events foretold in the explanation of that period in Daniel 9, 25-27. 69 weeks, the first 483 of the 2300 years, were to reach to the Messiah, the Anointed One, and Christ's baptism and anointing by the Holy Spirit, AD 27, exactly fulfilled the specification. In the midst of the 70th week, Messiah was to be cut off. Three and a half years after his baptism, Christ was crucified. In the spring of AD 31, the 70 weeks, or 490 years, were to pertain especially to the Jews. At the expiration of this period, the nation sealed its rejection of Christ by the persecution of his disciples, and the apostles turned to the Gentiles. AD 34. The first 490 years of the 2300 having then ended, 1,810 years would remain. From AD 34, 1,810 years extend to 1844. Then, said the angel, shall the sanctuary be cleansed. All the preceding specifications of the prophecy had been unquestionably fulfilled at the time appointed. And that then leads us to the speculation that Jesus was going to come in 1844, but no, it was just the investigative judgment. And now he is going to come in fulfillment of all of those prophecies, and don't ask me to explain their timeline. And this is why I always said, oh, greater minds than mine have this figured out. It was so confusing. And they need all of this stuff to fall during these timelines to justify their 1844 date setting. And what's so interesting to me is that Jesus actually said in Matthew 24, 29 to 31, he said this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and notice this is after the tribulation, not before, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. Now, doesn't that sound to you, Nikki, like all of these things happen in a concurrent or immediately one precedes the other? sequence. Yeah. And that's a lot how it happened when he was on the cross. And there was that first fulfillment of Joel 2. But don't you know, the Adventists say that 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 was fulfilled on May 19, 1780. (laughs) Which part was that? This is the darkness that descended upon the northeastern part of the North American continent. So only they... got this proof, this evidence. And signs of the earth included the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. And the great meteoric shower of November 13, 1833. (laughs) Is the fulfillment of the falling stars. Mm -hmm. How on earth? But they figured, and William Miller figured, that those events were the fulfillment of this prophecy of Jesus and that 1844 then would be the culmination. Oops, I'm sorry. The sanctuary was cleansed. But they still insist that those are fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that those events would precede his coming. They're still saying those events are fulfilled. But the way I read this, they haven't happened yet. So then they very clearly tip their hand as to what they believe the gospel is. They say, consider how the Seventh-day Adventist church is so fully involved in taking the gospel all over the world with a singular purpose— 
of spreading the good news of the soon coming of Jesus. And they go on and say, Worldwide, we had 148,000 congregations, each one on an active mission to proclaim urgently the coming of the King. And they begin to brag. They brag about the growth of the church from its beginning. In 1863, our total membership was 3,500 in 125 churches. And then they say now, and actually this is old data, this is from 2015, they have a global membership of 19.1 million, and it is way over 20 million today, probably closer to 23, and I don't know for sure, but the numbers keep going up. And then they go on and explain how many hospitals and clinics and dispensaries they have, 22 health food factories, part of the gospel, you know, Mm -hmm. 115 colleges and universities, 2,296 secondary schools, 5,332 elementary schools, 62 publishing houses producing gospel literature in more than 375 languages. Nikki, Mike makes right. Yeah. Anybody that big has to be telling the truth. And we've already heard that the gospel they're spreading is the soon coming of Jesus. And the soon coming of Jesus is not the biblical coming. It's the coming where the law appears in the sky and condemns everybody who sees it, except those faithful few who've kept the Sabbath. (laughs) That's not the biblical gospel or the biblical second coming. And then they go on to show how the world is displaying evidences that the coming is near. And they go through a litany that sounds to me like a revelation seminar. These Mm -hmm. are the kinds of things they tell people in those seminars. They talk about a resurgence of the papacy. Now, it's a little hard to know exactly how they validate that using data from today, but that is their point. The papacy is growing. Sunday keeping is spreading a decline in religious freedom, an increase in wickedness, a surge in world crime, the sexual revolution. And you know how they explain that? Well, you tell us. They say the disrespect for God's law current within much of Christianity has contributed to modern society's contempt for law and order. Throughout the world, crime is skyrocketing out of control. Disregard for God's law has also broken down the restraints of modesty and purity, resulting in a surge of immorality. They go on and on to say that all of the wickedness, all of the Romans 1 yes. cycle is the fault of the Christians who don't submit or live underneath the Decalogue. They blame Christians and they blame the loss of the law. And nothing could be further from the truth because law doesn't stop crime. No, it increases sin. Yes. They had just said, too, only those whose guide is the Bible and who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus, Revelation fourteen twelve their gospel, Mm -hmm. can successfully resist the overwhelming deception this confederation brings, the confederation being the papacy that rises up and deceives Protestantism, and now you're apostate Babylon, and you're disregarding the law because you're Mm -hmm. not keeping the Sabbath. Right. And now Jesus is coming, and oops, most of the world is condemned by that great Ten Commandments in the sky. And they actually say that there are Christians who believe that Jesus abolished the law. And I want to say, nope, 
I don't know a single Christian who believes Jesus abolished the no. law. He fulfilled the law. Yeah. He filled it up with meaning. All scripture is useful for teaching, but it needs to be used lawfully. He didn't abolish the law. What Hebrews 8.13 says is that the law now is obsolete, just like we talked earlier. It's not abolished. It's still there as a witness of Jesus, a witness of who He is. He's the only one who fulfilled it, and having it there still shows us who Jesus is. It's not abolished. It is fulfilled. Well, this chapter ends with this really pretty presumptuous paragraph. Before the flood, God sent Noah to alert the antediluvian world to the coming destruction. In a similar way, God is sending a threefold message of warning to prepare the world for Christ's return. See Revelation 14, 6 to 16. And what is Revelation 14, 4 to 16? The three angels' messages. That's the threefold warning that God is sending to the world. Talk about twisting scripture out of its context, stripping it of its meaning. Now, I want to close by reading a kind of astonishing paragraph from book Life Sketches of Ellen G. White. It's also found in her book or the the compilation of her works called Heaven. This is a description of the supposed travel to heaven after Jesus comes in the clouds and he catches up those who've become worthy. We all entered the cloud, the cloud in heaven, together and were seven days ascending to the sea of glass. Catch that? The trip to heaven is seven days. When Jesus brought the crowns and with his own right hand placed them on our heads, he gave us harps of gold and palms of victory. Here on the sea of glass, the 144,000 stood in a perfect square. Some of them had very bright crowns, others not so bright. Some crowns appeared heavy with stars. Well, Others had but few. All were perfectly satisfied with their crowns, and they were all clothed with a glorious white mantle from their shoulders to their feet. Angels were all about us as we marched over the sea of glass to the gate of the city. Jesus raised his mighty, glorious arm, laid hold of the pearly gate, swung it back on its glittering hinges, and said to us, You have washed your robes in my blood, stood stiffly for my truth. Enter in. We all marched in and felt that we had a perfect right in the city. Wow. Nikki, do you feel you have a perfect right in the city? The only thing that gives me the right to be in the city of God is Jesus. Yeah. It's not me. It's not my faithfulness to the law or my character perfection. No, it's Him. And as Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 says... The former priests, meaning the Levites, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our right to be in the city our right to be caught up when Jesus returns in the clouds without a Ten Commandments in the sky, our right to any of that is because we have trusted Jesus' finished work. As the Jews said to Jesus, this is in John six twenty nine. what shall we do to do the works of God? And he replied, the work of God is this, believe in the one 
whom he sent. That is what he asks of us. Believe in him. This scenario that this book paints, this scenario that Ellen White has developed, all dependent upon the law, upon the Sabbath, upon being good, is inside out and backwards. The truth is, Jesus is perfect. He came spiritually alive and never sinned, not because he managed to struggle through temptation and overcome by the strength of his will. He didn't sin because there was no sin in him. He went to the cross. He paid the price that the law demanded, and he nailed the law to the cross by fulfilling it, by filling it full of meaning. And in doing so, he disarmed Satan. Satan will never carry our sins into the lake of fire. Jesus carried our sins to the cross and took the full wrath of God in payment for them. And when we realize that we can't please him, that we can't keep the law, we can't become righteous by more and more observant behavior, when we realize that and we kneel at the foot of his cross and admit that we are helpless and we are marred with sin and we trust him, he forgives us. He makes us alive. He makes us new creations And from that moment, we're born again, and we long for his appearing. We want to be with him, and he's promised he will come for us. It's a done deal, and there's nothing to fear. There's no Ten Commandments in the sky, only our Lord Jesus, who's coming for us. And we're already seated with him at the right hand of God. And if you haven't experienced that, trust him today. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit Proclamation Magazine to sign up for our weekly emails or view past online articles. And if you'd like to leave a donation, there's a donate tab there as well. Like or follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we look at chapter 26 on the death and resurrection. See you then. See you then.